Would you take your scriptures and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Ephesians 1. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your hope for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you do thing, good things for your people when they live and obey your word. Open our eyes this morning that we may see wonderful things in your word. We're strangers on this earth, so please do not hide your word from us. Our souls are consumed with longing for your gospel. Your truths are a great delight to us. They are our counselors. Be gracious to us today. Give us openness to receive your word and strength to let it change our lives. We ask this. In the name that is above every name, to the name every knee shall bow, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the greatest debates in Christian circles has always been over the final responsibility for salvation. Is it God's or is it man's? 
there are two lines of thought in Christian theology that uh, one is Arminianism and the other Calvinism. You can line all denominations up on one side or the other. Now, there are some who try to develop a middle ground, but it never works. Both systems are logical expressions of the two main ideas of salvation. Is man in control of his own destiny, or is God in control? The first point in each system sets the stage for the following points. In Arminianism, the first point centers in the free will of man. Does man have a will, a free will, that is capable of choosing God's way over his own way? In Calvinism, the first point says man is dead in his trespasses and sins and unwilling and unable to seek God's way over his own. The fall, according to Arminians, says man only slipped and was injured in the fall, not killed. Calvinism declares man totally dead in the spiritual realm and without hope apart from the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Following this to the second point, which concerns election, Arminianism says election into the family of God is dependent upon you and how you respond to God's call. Calvinism says your election is the work of God and of God alone. Both of these points flow from the logic of the first point. If man is not dead, then it stands to reason. He has some ability and thus can respond to God's call on his own. If man is totally dead spiritually, then what can a dead man do? How He can do nothing. Therefore, to be saved requires a supernatural work of God in raising him from this death. Some have asked me over the years, why worry about this? The answer is really very simple. How you view your relationship with God and how you see that relationship coming into being is very important to your view of life. If you see yourself as the one making the decision for salvation, then you see yourself as the one who is in control of your life. On the other hand, if you see God as the one who has made the decision for your salvation, then you will continue to recognize him as the one in control of your life. The reason to study this doctrine of election rests in your view of how you will live your life. Paul calls you in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Will you recognize yourself as a worthless sinner saved by grace? Will you see that it is only in Christ Jesus you can have any worth before God? Will you, out of love, For this one who has saved you by the power of the Holy Spirit, work toward being obedient in order to please him. Election is a mysterious doctrine and one of the truly refreshing doctrines for those who labor well in trying to understand it. Let us take up the search for this wonderful truth that can set men free from this bondage of sin. I pray you will listen with open ears that you will hear with open hearts and will study hard to understand. This is the first of five sermons in which we will cover this doctrine of election. Our text this morning is verse 4. This morning we begin with a look at who the author of election is.
Second, we shall examine its nature. And third, we will develop the facts surrounding the object. The first thing you need to consider about this doctrine of election is who is the author. This starts off with a problem. What do you mean when you say author? Our doctrinal standards, following the lead of Scripture, says God is not the author of sin. Who is the initiator of sin? God has allowed that sin should come into his creation. We see that he even uses the sinful acts of men to carry out his own purposes. However, Scripture clearly says God does not make anyone sin. He does not force anyone to break the law. He doesn't force anyone to rebel against him. The initiator of sin is always man, thus the author of sin is always man, never God. The same argument can be applied to election. Who is the initiator of election, man or God? There can be no doubt God is the one who instituted election. He sent Jesus Christ to die to shed his blood for the redemption of a people unto himself. Without this work, there could be no election. Just as without God's creation of sin, there could be no sin. The question left, who is an, initiates or authors the actual act of election? Look at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Note in verse 4, he says, just as he chose us. Election is nothing more than being selected. If you go back to verse 3, you can see who it is that has chosen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he chose us. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, we hear these words, to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Christ makes it even clearer in John 15, 6. He puts it very simply. You did not choose me, but I chose you. God selected whom he will save. Christ's statement makes it very clear. It is God who initiates the salvation process. He does not do that by simply making salvation available, but by the act of selecting who shall receive it. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is the same thing Paul is saying in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he chose us. The author of your salvation is not you, it is the triune God. Some have a problem with this because they think it does harm to man's free will. What you have to understand about man's free will is that his free will was limited in the fall. Man was created in perfect righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. This does not mean he had all knowledge, but what knowledge he had was right. While he was created with these three attributes, he was also created mutable with the ability to change his mind. He was given the per a period of probation in this perfect state. The test was to not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. He was made aware of the blessings 
if he was true to this command and the curse if he failed to be true. The blessing was to have eternal life with God. The curse was eternal death, which is separation from God. Because he was separated, he had no desire nor ability to seek and know spiritual things, thus he was spiritually dead. Man failed the test, he exercised his free will and failed that test. He died spiritually, becoming worthless in God's eyes. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Man lost his ability. He lost his ability to choose good because he died spiritually. We all make many contrary choices in a day's time, but the spiritually dead man cannot choose anything spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit from God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritually dead man is incapable of making a spiritual choice or decision. Therefore, if anyone is to be saved, it has to be through God choosing them. Once your heart is renewed and you are made alive in Christ Jesus, you are given spiritual discernment. Then you can begin to make those spiritual choices by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in the hearts of all men God chose. God is the author of your election. He initiates the process that brings you to Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. To know the nature of election takes thought. We have already talked about the fall of mankind and the results of that fall. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now let me simplify this for you just a little bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he chose us to be holy and without blame. Why did God decide to save a people unto himself? He decreed from the beginning he would have a people to praise and glorify him. Man in his fallen state was in no condition to do either. Genesis 6, 5 says of man, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9 says of his heart, and I'm reading from the NIV, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. When we speak of election, we often speak of God's electing love. It's important to understand God's love and his election are closely tied together. The nature of his election is found in both his love and sovereignty. Man rebelled against God, turned his back on him and said, I don't need God, I can do it myself. God asked the people in Jeremiah, what fault was found in him that would make them do this? There was no fault in God. The fault 
was totally a man in his rebellious nature. Because he rebelled against his creator, he became lost. He became worthless to God. But God, because of his love of his creation, was not about to allow all of his creation to be lost. He elected to save a people unto himself out of the mass of sinful mankind. You are absolutely unworthy of anything from God in your unregenerate state. You may remember John the Baptist, who according to Christ in Matthew 11, 11, was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament dispensation. John the Baptist in John 1, 27 said of Christ, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Here is one who Christ says is great, yet he recognizes. He recognizes his own worthlessness before the God-man. John the Baptist did not see himself as worthy in the eyes of God. He knew any worth he had as a prophet came from the Spirit working through him, not from himself. Your election is not because you have worth before God. It is because of God's love of his handiwork of his creation. Consider Romans 5, 6 through 11. It begins, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say it's doubtful that someone might die for a righteous man. He says someone might for a good man. Then he explains that God showed his love toward us while we were still sinners. How did he show that love through the death of his son? Jesus died for us. He goes on to say, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved through wrath, from wrath through him. For if we were, his, were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We also rejoice in God by Jesus through reconciliation. You were saved. You were saved as a demonstration of God's love. Yes, God pours his love out in your heart. You were powerless to earn this love. Paul makes it clear. Christ died for ungodly, worthless, and hopeless sinners. He chose to be the demonstration of God's love. That's why he selected you. Well, so you could be a demonstration of God's love. He says most people will not die for a righteous or a good man. But here, this is important, here Christ comes. And what does he do? He dies for a bunch of worthless sinners. He does this to show the power and wonder of his love. This love not only justifies, but also clears you of God's wrath. It changes you from the enemy of God to the son of God. You are given the worth of a son because it was God's son that saved you. He saved you so he might have a people unto himself. Yes. Yes, God loves those who are elect. But because it was his decree to have a people that caused your election to begin with. He does love you as one chosen in Christ. He loved you, making you a demonstration of his great love. The nature of his election is found in his love of his creation. It is found in the demonstration of that love in the individual hearts of the saints.
In verse 4, Paul shows this all to be true. He says, just as he chose us to be holy and without blame. This means you were chosen out of an unholy and sinful estate. Psalm 5, five teaches about God. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. God hates the arrogant. He hates the rebellious sinner. Yet because of his decree to have a people unto himself, he chooses to call some out of this unholy state and to call them into a holy and blameless relationship with him. He chooses to demonstrate his love for some men. My friends, this does not diminish the idea of God's love. It makes it greater. Jesus taught concerning this love in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. He called you to emulate his love, this electing love, this love that was, was given to you even while you were in your sins and unworthy of it. This is the nature of his election, his great and merciful love. Let me ask you a question. Do you know this love? Are you willing to live in this love? There's no salvation for those who are not in this love. Turn from the love of self to the love of God, and you too can know this wonderful love that saves. This love shown by Jesus Christ. God is the author of election. His love is the nature of it. Next, we must consider the object of it. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, holy and without blame before him in love. He chooses us. The little word us declares the object of his election. Who is this us? Some want to make this us to be all men. What is the difference then? Some know they're elect and others don't. Is this what scripture says? No, it is not. Consider John 6, verses 35 through 40. He begins, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He also reminds the Jews to whom he is talking that they have seen him, and yet they have not believed. He tells them that all the Father has given him will come to him. He promises that all who come to him will be, not be cast out. He says he came down from heaven to do his Father's will. He says that will was to lose none of those that were given to him by the Father. He ends this with these words. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the people who have been following him. He tells them, he is what they need, but they can't understand. Because even though they see him, they do not have a heart with which to believe. 
He goes on to explain all the Father gives to him, thus changing their hearts so they can believe will come to him. He says the whole purpose of his coming was to fulfill the plan of his Father to redeem a people unto himself. He was sent to save the elect, to save them from their worthless and hopeless existence. And he will raise them up at the last day. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to raise us up. He's going to take us to be with him in heaven. The question then must be, how do you become one of the elect? He answers that in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Only. Only if you're one of those chosen by the Father can you come to Jesus Christ. Jesus also said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He makes plain in John 10, verses 25 and 26, not all are his sheep when he answers the Jews concerning if he is their Christ. He says, I told you, and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you did not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Not all men are to be elect. This should be a source of great joy to all who are in Christ. You are there by divine appointment. Your salvation is not dependent on you and your abilities, but because of God's desire to demonstrate his love on you. You know, we all fall into sin and we wonder, are we saved? And we get concerned. But if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, then he will forgive you those sins if you will confess them. And you will be with him on that last day, being raised up. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our feelings. We trust in Jesus Christ and the promises he has made. God's love is not like our love. His love is objective. Ours is subjective. Objective love is a love given without any reason outside of the one giving it. Subjective love is always given because of outside prejudice. God first loved us. Why did he love us? Because it pleased him to do so. We love him in return because of the love he's given us. Our love is in response to something outside of ourselves. God's love is grounded in his own goodwill. God chose to love his people, the elect, not because of anything within them that made them lovable. Understand, God didn't need us. You don't need me, you don't need you. God chose you because he had decreed he would display his love. He poured his love into your heart, and once that love penetrated, it changed you, and it drew you to Jesus Christ. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that time when you began to recognize, wait a minute, there must be something to this Jesus stuff. And you understood, you grew deeper and deeper into it. God chose you because he had decreed he would display his love. Jesus then takes up your cause and represents you in the court of heaven. 
you know, we get concerned. I got to give an account of everything I've ever done when I get to heaven. Is that not scary? But don't worry about it. If you believe in and trust in Christ, He's going to be your advocate. He's going to speak for you. He's going to take your case. And when you come before the Father, He's going to find that this was one of mine. And the Father's going to say, move over here on my right. He's been doing this all along. John 17, 9. I pray for them, the elect. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is a perfect example of God's undeserved love being given to some and not to others. Christ prays for all the Father has given him and not for anyone not given him by the Father. So who are the elect, the us, Paul speaks of in verse 4? Look back at the last half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. The us are these saints in Ephesus. So, does that mean only a saint from Ephesus can be considered one of the elect? That's why he adds to this explanation the words, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Not only is this a further explanation of who true saints are, it is also an inclusion of saints everywhere in the truths of this letter. If you're living your life trusting exclusively in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you too are a saint under the definition, therefore you are one of the elect. God's object in this process of election was you as one of the faithful in Christ Jesus. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved his creation. He loved it so much he sent Jesus Christ to pay the price for those he had chosen before the world was created that they, through faith, through trust in him, might be saved from the spiritual death they had fallen into. There was no other way for any man to be saved than to be chosen in Jesus Christ. Some want to belittle this idea. They want to say, then God drags people into his kingdom kicking and screaming against it. Well, this is a totally ludicrous idea. God comes into a heart. What does he do in that heart? He fills that heart with his love. A love that is so completely undeserved. He changes the heart and makes it aware of the sin it has been living in. He opens the heart to the wonderful offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Through these changes, there's a transformation. And the person begins to see his need of the grace offered in Jesus Christ. He takes the gifts given him in this changed heart, faith and repentance. And he freely of his own will exercises both. He calls on Jesus to save him. He calls on Jesus to work, to turn him away from his sinful ways. He begins to realize that God has loved him, and in response, he loves God. His desire grows to be more and more pleasing to this wonderful God that has chosen him and changed him. He sees that he is indeed the object of something far more wonderful than he can comprehend. 
His assurance grows and his hope is secured in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My friends, this doctrine of election, this is a great and wonderful mystery. How can one as holy and pure as God look down upon those who are worthless and filthy as we men? I don't know the full scope of this mystery. But I do know what the scripture teaches that he has done exactly that. He has looked down upon us. He has looked down and collected from this mass of sinful men some to be his. He did not choose because of beauty, wealth, power, or prestige. He chose out of his own goodwill and pleasure. He picked men from every economic level, from every station in life, from every race, nation, tribe, and language group. He picked the simple and the wise all to serve him. It has been suggested that if God is the initiator of salvation, then there is no reason for us to worry ourselves with trying to understand him or his plan. This is the mindless dribble of one who has no spiritual life at all. For everyone called by God, a desire is implanted in them to know him and his glorious plan, to seek out a deeper and deeper understanding of the truths that he has given for living this life. Understanding the depths of God and his plan of redemption is hard work. Do not be discouraged. Understanding and knowing the simple truth of this plan is easy. These truths can be like a great ocean. They are so full that in some places it's far over the head of even the brightest scholars. Yet there are places where it is so shallow that it is safe for even the simplest to wade without danger. This doctrine of election has both depths and shallows. All you need to know about this doctrine to be saved is that God has made a way for his people to know Jesus Christ. He has decreed that this gospel message should be preached throughout the world and that all who will hear and believe shall be saved. If you sit under the preaching of the word, if it pricks your heart such that you know you're a sinner, if it causes you to experience the conviction of sin and desire relief from that conviction, and you see that relief only in Jesus Christ, it is because God is calling you to himself through Jesus Christ. All you need to do, all you need to do is turn loose of your own attempts to overcome your sin. Turn and come to Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him and in him alone as your Savior. For he is the only way to the Father. Let us pray. Father, what a joy it has been to gather here in your name. Thank you for the grace you've extended to us as your people. Help us to take the truth we have heard and apply it in our lives. Gracious God. You who are the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our complete spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. It is in his name we come. The name of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. Amen. You would take your hymnals and turn with it to hymn 699, Like a River Glorious.